So it's been 20 years since the first edition of your book was published. What's changed since the book's first release, and what hasn't when it comes to this country's attitudes about race and racism? When I decided to you know, do the 20th anniversary edition, one of the things I thought about was what had changed in the last 20 years. And certainly one of those things is the population itself. We have a much more diverse population today than we did 20 years ago, and certainly more diverse than we did 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. Um, in 1954, the year I was born, the U.S. population was 90% white. Uh, in 2014, it was the first year that uh, the population of school-aged children was more than 50% children of color. So that in itself is a significant change. But I also talk about the fact that even though the population's gotten more diverse, our social configuration has not really changed. Neighborhoods are still very segregated in the United States for the most part, and schools are even more segregated today than they were 20 or 30 years ago. So in some ways, the dynamic of making connections across racial divides has not changed very much for the better because people are still separated from one another in a lot of ways. On the other hand, we do know that there is, at this moment, more conversation about race because we must have it in the face of all the changes that are taking place. Has your own perspective shifted at all in the past 20 years? That's an interesting question. Um, when my book was originally published in 1997, I'd been teaching the psychology of racism for almost 20 years at that point. And shortly after the book was published, I became a dean. That was in 1998. And then I became a college president, first um, as acting president at Mount Holyoke and then president of Spelman College for 13 years. And certainly shifting my position from being a faculty member to being a college administrator and certainly as a president helped me to see the complexity of trying to create inclusive environments and ones in which you're trying to meet, you know, multiple needs of your varying constituents. And so I know that there's a lot that school leaders and other kinds of leaders are trying to juggle when they're trying to address these issues. I also came to really understand how important leadership is in doing what I call the ABCs of leadership. A, affirming identity, B, building community, and C, cultivating leadership. Affirming identity is really about trying to create an environment where everyone can see themselves represented and feel welcomed into that environment. And B, building community is critical if you want to get, you know, a sense of shared belonging and if you've got goals for your organization, trying to move those goals forward really requires having everyone feel invested in those goals. And then the C, cultivating leadership, is critical both for the person who's leading the organization as president or a principal. It's critical for the next generation. You know, when we're educating students, we're preparing them for citizenship in a democracy, and we need to help them be able to engage with people different from themselves across lines of difference if they are going to be able to have the appropriate leadership for the 21st century. Any advice for school leaders, particularly in the kindergarten through 12th grade spaces? Yes. One of the things I would say for any school leader, um, whether it's pre-K, elementary, middle, secondary, higher ed, my advice is to embrace the conversations. Sometimes people want to avoid them. 
you know, there's a lot of hesitation sometimes to talk about race and racism in our society because people feel that it will cause conflict. But the reality is conflict often arises because we're not talking um, and we're not really um, being proactive in our conversation about how these issues are manifesting themselves in schools and how we are preparing young people to interrupt the cycle of racism. It's not easy. Of course, there are challenges, but we all need to be willing to risk some discomfort. And this, again, is where leadership can make a huge difference in terms of really creating the space in schools, whether that's through special programming or um, the kinds of co-curricular activities or looking at the curriculum and how these issues are being talked about in the classroom and how they are aligned with the values of the mission of the institution. Just to quickly piggyback on that question, children as young as preschool age start to notice racial differences, uh, and you've written the productive cross-racial dialogue about race and racism at home and at school and in the workplace is really key to raising consciousness and creating change. Yet many teachers, like you were saying, often have a lot of trouble discussing this in their classrooms. Any specific tips for helping teachers get comfortable to talk honestly about race um, or yes. any educators you know who are doing this work particularly well? The first thing we have to be conscious of, of course, is what's age-appropriate. So when I say that we should be having these conversations, I mean that in the context of the developmental stage of the children. But you can have conversations with three-year-olds about issues of race because they are commenting, they notice difference. You know, they talk about skin color difference and differences in hair texture or eye shape. They ask questions about those things. And if we are listening carefully to those conversations, we can educate to help young children understand that these differences are a perfectly normal part of our lives and not something to be worried about or um, certainly not to discriminate about. It's hard for teachers to have conversations if they don't have practice having them with each other. That's certainly a place where professional development can help, creating those kinds of uh, learning opportunities, whether it's through a book club, you know, where teachers are reading a book together and talking about it after school or, you know, attending seminars or watching TED Talks together. You know, there are lots of ways to do that kind of professional development. Getting more comfortable with the conversation, I think, is the first step. I want to go back to your book title, the fact that all the black kids are still sitting together in the cafeteria. You write in the revised edition that young children in racially mixed elementary schools cross racial boundaries with ease, but that by middle school, racial grouping begins, even in schools where children have known each other since kindergarten. Could you talk a little bit more about why this happens? There are two reasons that I want to lift up here. One is a developmental reason. As children are entering middle school, typically that coincides with puberty. And one of the things we know about puberty is that it's not just, you know, the bottom half of bodies that are changing, but the brains are changing too. You know, that um, children are able to think more abstractly as their brains continue to grow and develop. And as that capacity develops, they start asking those more abstract questions like, who am I? How do I fit into society? How do people see me? What does it mean that I am perceived as a member of uh, a minority racial group? And and I say that in particular because um, children of color are more likely to be thinking about these questions 
at that time than white children are. And that has everything to do with the fact that they are coming to terms with the way racism impacts their lives or the lives of people like them. And the adults in the environment start responding to them differently. So, you know, how you respond to a young, um, let's say a six-year-old African-American boy is different than the way people respond to a 14-year-old African-American boy. You know, the six-year-old might be seen as cute. The 14-year-old might be seen as dangerous. And so how um, those cues are being communicated to them is part of what they're thinking about. And connecting with other kids who are having similar experiences is a natural response. Continuing in this idea of how important it is for students of color to have room and support to develop their racial identities with other students who are also going through the same process, you mentioned a desegregation program at a middle school in Boston in the 90s that did this. Yes. It improved their academic performance and social relationships across the board. How does mm -hmm. further separating students actually help them come together, um, and how does this not put an undue burden on students of color to be you know, the ones to improve relationships? If you are having a need to be affirmed in your identity, that's a very fundamental need. Connecting with someone across lines of difference can be taxing. For lots of reasons. You know, if young people are growing up in different neighborhoods, they're separated by residential segregation, and now they're coming together in a school environment, part of that experience may be the projection of stereotypes onto each other, right? Not because people are mean or mean-spirited, but because they have learned stereotypical information. And so when you're bringing kids together, particularly in adolescence, which tends to be a time of heightened um, self-awareness, uh, sometimes heightened insecurities, it may be a challenging task to say, you know, we want you to connect in ways that may not always feel comfortable. If you have had um, a chance to take care of your fundamental core need, then you've got more energy to reach out across lines of difference. This is not to say that the burden of improving race relations should lie on kids of color. You know, I was curious, because that was a program done in the 90s, whether it was still being um, used. And I happened to run into someone who's still working in that school district, and she told me that it is. So I was pleased to know that, because it seemed as though it was very beneficial to those children to have that opportunity to, um, in the safe space of each other's company, work through some things that were important to them, and allowed them to then better concentrate on their academic performance. And are there other school integration approaches you've seen or heard of that uh, you think have been particularly successful? There are a number of independent schools that use affinity groups as a way of providing social support for children of color, particularly in the middle school and high school years, and, you know, with, again, positive effect. But I think it's important to say that even as we recognize that it is important to create spaces where kids of color can explore their identities, um, can feel affirmed, and have some buffer from what we might describe as the racism in the environments that they are surrounded by. At the same time, I think it is equally important for us to create opportunities for children of color and white children to engage and connect across lines of difference in ways that support um, a deeper understanding of race and racism in our society and how everybody is affected by that 
and ways that they can in their own spheres of influence, even as young people, be active participants in creating a more just society. I'm curious what you envision for the next 20 years. I have lived long enough to see progress in our society, but I also am a student of history, and I know that progress is rarely linear. We are living in a moment at this at this particular moment in history where we have seen forward motion and now we're feeling that backward press. It is sometimes difficult to maintain one's optimism when you see so much backward motion. That said, what gives me continued hope and optimism are the people I have met during the course of working on this version of my book who are every day taking action to create more equitable societies in their sphere of influence. You know, whether that is the, you know, Student Government Association president who's speaking up against incidences of racism on his campus, or that is community members engaging in cross-racial dialogue trying to bring about racial healing in their communities, or it is the teacher who is choosing to provide opportunities for dialogue in the classroom. There are examples everywhere, and I think that if we pay attention to the opportunity that each of us has to make a difference, we can move forward again together as a society.